Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All righty, welcome back for another edition of the Final Mile, where we answer all of your questions. Keep sending them to us. We've got six good ones today. Please take a moment and check out the description box and support the sponsors. We recommend their products and services, and we recommend, <clears throat> um, you know, we encourage you to check them out. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about us, go to Freight360.net. You can check out the Freight Broker Basics course to learn everything you need to know to start a brokerage, get customers, and grow it successfully. All right, let's get into it, Ben. First question, in regards to carrier vetting, what is a burner MC? <laughs> I'm going to answer this. Well, I, well here's I the first thing is, I want to go with the analogy. I started watching The Wire again. I don't know if you ever saw that show on HBO from like 20 or 30 years ago, but it's like burner phones. Yeah, burner phones. relates. Yeah, like why do you use them? Because you can throw them away and there's not much risk to them and you're not associated with it. Yep, is exactly. My take on what that probably means. <laughs> yeah, and the same the same goes for burner MC. I actually um I he, I don't hear it called burner MC as much, but that's probably that's probably one of the most clever ways to, you know, to title it because that's exactly what it is. Um what I would call it is it's basically a, a stash of a bunch of like fraud MCs. Well, they're they're mm-hmm. legit, but they're intended to be used for fraud. So what some of these scammers will do is they'll go out there and they'll pay to get um, 50 different authorities, right? It's worth it for them to pay $300 for every single authority because they're going to scam somebody for hopefully 30 grand before they get busted, right? Enough people get scammed for double brokerage, quick pays, and boom. The MC gets reported they stop using it, fall face of the earth. Hence, it's burned. Burner, right? So that's what it is. Um, like any other vetting, I mean, this is still just kind of. Well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll right into the next question because it's gonna relate well, to it. Well, the first one, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Second one. Was, and I'm talking about you know how do you identify, right? So like the next okay. qu- question is about should I use highway instead of carrier four one one or should I use them together? Um, I personally only use highway. I don't use carrier 411 anymore. I didn't, I, I think highways value overall is, uh, it, it includes and goes way beyond the effectiveness of carrier 411. You won't get those freight guards that 411 has, but you will get TIA watchdog reports and highway has its own reports for fraud. Yep. Now, how would I identify a possible burner MC? Well, if I'm vetting them out and they have no inspection history, and they have been in business for one month and they're located in Glendale, California or any other known hotspot and fill in the blank on all the other red flags for these fraudsters out there. P.O. box as an address, um, never been accessed from within the United States. If you get any of that kind of stuff, you know, treat it like any other fraud or potential risk. Right. Go because there is a slight chance that it's not a double broker because just because they're brand new. But, you know, go through all the challenges. You're going to require them to do every little SOP or, you know, standard operating procedure that your company has in place or that you have in place to vet carriers out. I want to, you know, you're not going to receive a, a pickup 
number from me or a full address for my customer's location until I verify that you have enabled GPS and you've taken a picture, a selfie of you in front of your truck showing the name and MC number. Um, you know, you know, there's different challenges you can use. Or if you if you have highway and you have their their uh, highway connect version, you can have them ELD connect, you know, and verify their location that way. There's like all kinds of ways to do this. But I can tell you right now, if somebody's trying to scam you and they're using a burner MC, you start to challenge them. They're not going to deal with it. They're just going to move on to the next weak person. So agreed. I, I, my favorite, my favorite verbiage is, "Hey, my customers had a bunch of fraud and double brokering over the past year, so they want to know at least make and model and color of the vehicle we're sending in. So can you just confirm what what kind of truck we're actually sending in? Freightliner? What color is it? MCs on the side." Because the guy at the shipping dock is always going to check and make sure whatever I send him is what shows up. Otherwise, they'll reject him. And again, to your point, it's easier for somebody trying to commit fraud to just go to an easier target than yep. to try to go through that scenario. And what would normally happen, they won't say anything. Just 15 minutes later, you'll get a phone call or an email. Truck can't make it broke down or fall out. Then you got your answer, right? Yeah, for sure. Next up, if, the, if freight or produce specifically is damaged in route due to an accident and the receiver rejects the entire load. Can you call for a USDA inspection? Can it be salvaged? Um, there's a lot of, it depends when it comes to this. So USDA inspection, if, if a, if there's going to be a claim on food product, you're going to usually always see a USDA inspection ordered and they're not very difficult. Um, a lot of times at these big facilities, they just hang, they're, they're already on the dock um, and they'll come and do their, their inspection. But it is really important to get a USDA inspection done because now you're going to have a third party um, give their like very objective report on this. There's no like bias here. It's very objective. They're going to say, okay, this commodity is, you know, 8% damaged or 100% damaged. Like, like, I mean, check out some of our blue quantify it videos to go through this but like yeah they quantify it like they will tell you exactly what it is because they're going to take that in conjunction with the the value of the goods from like a bill of sale and they're going to figure out what the claim's worth now salvaged that's another good question here because sometimes they can salvage a portion of the goods and i actually saw this happen recently with um with produce where some of it was able to be salvaged um, they now, what do you do with what's left over? Which was not asked, but it's a good question. Sometimes the receiver's just like, I don't care what you do, just get it out of here. But a lot of times they will tell you, like, hey, there is a food bank that will happily take this product. It doesn't meet our our uh, standards for our customer to put it in a grocery store, but it is still edible, and you can you can go donate it to a local food bank. And they'll tell you where to go. Some of them are like, just go dump it. I don't care where you, where it goes. Just dump it. So yep. it's, a, it's a good question to, to ask and clarify. Um, but if there's any salvaging being done, that salvage is going to save a percentage of the claim. So it's not a full loss. So that's, that's good stuff. That's why the USDA inspection is important. Because imagine this. The carrier or the receiver is like, no, I'm not taking any of this. I'm rejecting all of it. But the reality is like, it's not all bad you could sell can you sell any of it what's that if if your receiver doesn't have somewhere 
or doesn't have a suggestion, are there any other options or places to call to try to get any value out of it other than donating it? What would be your next option? If it was your um, the two big ones I often hear is like uh, donate or throw it out somewhere, like find a place to go throw out, you know, 20 pallets of frozen onions or something. <laughs> it's a, it's yep. it's wild, man. Um, I'm trying to think of a situation where we didn't know. We've had we've had plenty of situations where we couldn't get a clear answer, and it was back and forth and lack of communication. But at the end of the day, like somebody told us what to do with the product or where we could go with it. Yeah. But like I've seen them before, where the the receiver rejects it, and if there's no USDA inspection done on it, the insurance company on the carrier side can be like, well. I did everything right. Here's my temp recorder on my yeah. reefer unit. Here's the pictures that, you know, here's how it was loaded. It was, I didn't do anything wrong. And the insurance company might deny it. That's why it's like really right. important to cross your T's and dot your I's on this stuff. Um, Cause it, we talked about this with the TIA coaching earlier. Um, you could have, and we've talked about with blue book. You could have, a bad actor shipper trying to pull pull a fast one because they've got it doesn't necessarily have to be bad or intentionally right like it could just be negligent could be a new person at the dock that just you know something happened they forgot to pre-cool the the commodity long enough thought they did it long enough and they were new they did it an hour it needed to be four hours right it could be a lot of different reasons right it doesn't have to be you know, malicious intent or somebody's trying to screw somebody else over. Like there's lots exactly. of things that can go wrong. But good question. Um, next up, what kind of pricing difference is there between hazmat and non-hazmat van loads? Actually, well, this is about van. So I'll speak to LTL and I'll let you speak to van. If you've got some uh, experience there, mine's mostly in L- the LTL space when it comes to hazmat. Each LTL carrier has usually an accessorial charge for hazmat. And that might be, I mean, again, LTL is going to be very different, but it might be 50 bucks. It might be 25 bucks for an LTL shipment, which might just be a pallet or two. Um, But they treat hazmat just the same way as they would treat any other accessorial charge, like requires a lift gate, requires inside delivery, requires delivery at a military installation, stuff like that. The big LTL carriers are all hazmat certified, so it's not hard you're not trying to go out there and search for a truck that's got hazmat um, certification, but in the full truck world with vans, where do you, I mean, cause you got to find a driver that is hazmat certified, has placards and all that stuff. So what have you, what has your experience been with that? Not only that, but you have a whole range of hazmat classes that oh, yeah. have different types of insurance requirements. So you have different prices for that insurance. You have different driver requirements to haul those hazmats. So like in the tanker world, this is really common because you can have some very, very nasty chemicals hauled in similar looking equipment to things that aren't that nasty. And I mean like stuff that if it gets on you, you can't get off and you need to go to the hospital immediately. Like very, very extreme examples. Like you could pay... 20% 20% more than your entire load to move that. But again, that's in the tanker world. On vans, if you're like non-corrosive, like kind of, I would say like your easier hazmat, like batteries and things, like rule of thumb, like 
250 to 350 above your van rate is usually good enough to get a hazmat driver to move a similar because especially if you're in a market where there's lots of them that's where the subjectiveness comes through like i've done a lot of this work around chicago there's lots of carriers that move in and around that area and it's pretty easy to find a hazmat for an easy class like a battery now again if you're moving some liquid that is in you know containers or totes that is very very corrosive you could pay twice the line haul rate to find a carrier that even has the ability to haul that. And I'll give you one specific example where I ran into this a lot. It was with ammunition and explosives. Like I saw rates that were three to four times the line haul rate to use carriers to haul explosives and ammunitions. The insurance, the protocols to move it, the yeah, driver certifications. That, that's a really good point that I didn't think about when I read this question. Um, yeah, the more like your one point, whatever explosives that like you, I think 1.5 is where a lot of the fireworks fall. Yeah. Um, yeah, that stuff. And not to mention, you're also dealing with like, if it's 4th of July time, you're dealing with a, uh, peak shipping time. So, yeah. And again, you, you, if you're going to move this and your customer does a lot of hazmat, you're going to spend a lot of time learning about it. You need to learn about the class. You need to call carriers to see how many actually can move this. And you'll, Ask lots of questions. What I advise anyone out there, if you're in this situation, like post the loads up there, put the hazmat class and ask the carriers that you talk to, like, hey, how many drivers do you have that could move this? Hey, looks like the line haul rate for this lane is this. What would you need to run this? Talk to half a dozen on a couple of different lanes and you'll get an idea. Okay, this one is super hard to cover. This one seems like everyone I talk to could run and it seems to be about this much above. That's where all my numbers come from is literally doing it, right? Calling carriers, posting them out, talking to them and seeing who had it. And then, I mean, for the, the fireworks, not, it wasn't even fireworks for me. It was ammunition. It was like firearm ammunition for like competitions. Yeah. It took me like a whole week to find two or three carriers that only do this. And when I started talking to them, it made all the sense in the world. And it was literally like, I think at the time we were paying like two bucks a mile they were charging like eight bucks a mile to the haul of the same loads. And again, for all the reasons we just got outlined. Yep. Yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, good tax question here. We're, we're just tax seasons are around the corner. Um, it's in my first year as a 1099, I am projected to make around 100K. Congratulations. What can I expect to pay in taxes and how can I handle write offs and deductions? Um, well, let me start by saying uh, I'm not going to answer this guy's. I'm not going to actually tell him how much he's going to pay because I don't know. I'm not a tax pro, but I, I can tell you up there. Here's his. An- here's the answer, at least according to the filing statuses. If you're single, 100k, you fall under 24 percent federal, not state. If you're married filing jointly at 100k, you're 22%. yeah, but it's also it's tiered, so you're going to pay your first whatever is going to be no tax, then between. Have you fallen victim to double brokering, cargo theft, or identity theft? Quickscope stands out as the only low-level fraud protection tool available today. Unlike any other solution on the market, Quickscope is deployed post-agreement between shippers or brokers and carriers. Shippers can rest assured that their cargo remains secure. Brokers can confidently confirm the identity of the individuals on site for pickup, and carriers can trust that they'll receive timely payment. Start your free trial with Quickscope today by visiting them online 
at quickscope.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-K-O-P-E.com. Blue Book Services is the resource you need if you're transporting fresh produce or lumber. Their online databases contain thousands of companies throughout the produce and lumber industry supply chains. You can easily search their databases to generate new sales leads. Blue Book's credit ratings help you avoid companies with high credit risk, and their team can help resolve disputed loads. To learn more, go to ProduceBlueBook.com or LumberBlueBook.com and click Join Today. I mean, yeah. round numbers for like general rule of thumb, I always kind of go with like 25%. Yes. It's <laughs> probably so where you fall. The the like industry average accepted like amount for taxes for 1099 is usually like a quarter of your pay. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, uh, you mentioned like single versus married is going to change it up. In your first year as a 1099, you are not required to make uh, quarterly estimates. Assuming that it's your first time, like if like if you were a 1099 somewhere else and immediately switched over, then yes. But your first year ever as a 1099, you don't have to make quarterly estimates. You can just file at the end of the uh, in tax season the next um, year and pay whatever your owed amount is with no penalties. After that, your first full year, you are supposed to make quarterly estimates. And if you don't, they can uh, or if you don't or if you underestimate they can add a penalty on there. Um, it's like 500 bucks or something like that. Now, expenses as far like right, he said, write-offs and deductions. So as a 1099, um, here's the way I would here's the way I would always do it. And your tax person's gonna give you different advice. But if you're able, I'm assuming they're an agent from the 1099, right? So I'm assuming you're a, a sales agent for a brokerage. Um if you, whatever you're paying for is directly used for the business, then by all means, it's a deduction. Like if you're paying for your own load boards, if you are, if you had to buy a computer, yep. if you're paying for your cell phone bill or your, whatever your phone system is, um, then you can, you can write those off. Now, if you're going to do a, like some people will try to write off the square footage of their home office and, there's a formula to do it, but then, and again, I'm not a real estate or a financial expert, but you, whatever you've depreciated off your house and written off would have to be recaptured when you sell your house. If I'm correct. So ask your tax person because I've asked about, <laughs> I've asked about writing off my home office for certain things. And my tax guy's like, dude, it's not worth it. It's such Everyone a small, I've talked to said it's not worth it either. Too. Yeah, I've small, I looked into it a like few you're times. You're going to end up paying more in the long run when it's recaptured. If you know, not if, but yep. when you sell your house because you're not going to live there forever. So here's the other buckets I think too are also state tax different in every state. FYI, yes. So. The other deductions too that I I run into are meals um, related to business. So for instance, you're in town and you and I go somewhere to go do work, to go record. Like when we went to go meet Trey at Lean, right? Yep. So, hey, we go eat lunch on the way there. We're with Trey. We're going to meet them. And maybe we go out to dinner. Like those are all write-offs for sure. Anything I use for my business, to your point, software or technology is a write-off. I bought it for business. It is used for business. My monitors, my computer, 
I had set literally everything sitting on my desk, paper, all of those normal office supplies are all deductible. Um, here's the one. I, I learned this. Here's how clothes fall. You can only deduct clothes if they have your company logo or you have had them customized with your initials. And funny, short little story, you know, back in the day, all of the bankers used to have their initials on their shirts. The reason they did that was because they became a tax write-off once they did that. If they hadn't, they couldn't write off those. That's why that became popular. Because I was talking with our accountant actually about this, because he was telling me about like gym owners. They wanted to write off their gym clothes. And he said, you can't unless it has the company's logo on it. Otherwise, you can't write it off. Like that's where they draw the line. The, 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 the overall point is you should find an accountant that you trust that you can work with year over year so that you can have a good tax structure because throughout your course of earning money, the biggest thing you're going to spend money on is taxes. So learning how and where you are spending ta- money on taxes and what is actually can be a deduction is very, very beneficial as a business owner or as a 1099 because your biggest opportunity to reduce your taxable income is as a business owner. There's huge advantages in the tax code for when you own businesses to be able to get tax benefits, to incentivize businesses. So speaking with your accountant, talking to them and really understanding not just what happened last year, and what you can deduct, which is what most people do while you're there. Okay, we're going into next year. What didn't I take advantage of that I could And for me, one of the big things is have separate business accounts because it makes this so much easier. Like have a checking account for your business and have one for personal and only use that debit card when you buy things for your business. Then at the end of the year, everything is just in that account. You can just export it, send it to your, your, your accountant. They can see everything you bought. And by the way, I don't think you need receipts. The IRS is okay with taking a debit card transaction, I believe, in lieu of a receipt, which just makes all of this easier going forward. Because I do some of this with other clients and it's a nightmare when they try to figure it out after the fact. The last thing I'll say is um, you can write off anything you want, but (laughs) you get audited, (laughs) you're going to have to come answering to the IRS. And here's something important. They don't audit you when you file it. They have three years to audit you. So it's not like you send this in and you get your refund check and you're like, oh, got away with it. They got three years before you're going to hear them knock on your door and come and audit you. And if they audit you, you're fairly certain you're going to pay some penalty. Is it only three? I don't know why I thought it was like seven. I think it's three. Three. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. We're not tax pros. So I'm going to move on to the next question while you research that. Uh, my customer has asked me to upload PODs and invoices to their online TMS. Is this normal? Um, it is fairly common in a lot of companies. They outsource a lot of their um, administrative work and computer systems to a third party. So you might be you might be bidding on a third party TMS of theirs online. You might be receiving load tenders through that TMS. You might be invoicing them and submitting paperwork on that TMS. It's pretty common. If you have one of those systems in place for a customer, make sure your accounting person, whether that's you or somebody else, understands how to use it. Because if there's ever um, accessorial charges that have to be entered in and requested or approved, it'll typically go through those systems. So, yes, those are fairly common. What would you find out, Ben? Three years in most cases. However, if you have omitted more than 25% of your gross income, they can go back six years on what they consider a fraudulent return. And there is no time limit if you didn't file 
If you've never filed or if you filed a false or fraudulent return with intent to evade taxes, which I'm guessing they could probably justify in any scenario. You know, I thought it was funny. I saw this as a meme the other day, but I've seen I've seen it before. It's like I know there's a say. spot on your taxes to report like illegally earned money from like dealing <laughs> drugs, bribes, stuff like that. And it's literally on the on the tax form. So, you know, the funnier okay. one I thought you were going to say is there's a meme that's like, hey, it's tax time. We won't tell you how to pay it, what to do, how to read through the tax code. And if you don't get it right, you go to jail. Good luck. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like that's basically the U.S. tax code. <laughs> you're yeah, on your you're own. Not wrong. It's very it complex. And if you get it wrong, you go to jail. <laughs> good yep. luck. But hey, good stuff. Great questions. Keep sending them in. Um, that's all I got. We'll, you know, we'll get more, get to more questions on the next uh, final mile here. Ben, thoughts? For sure. Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.